during my residency from 84 to 87, I, I started going back and forth. I'd go to the hospital during my residency, and when I had free time, I'd go to the acupuncture clinic. So I was starting to learn both modalities that, you know, I had to do my residency, but I'd spend my spare time going to the acupuncture clinic and seeing what was going on at the acupuncture clinic. And I saw there, that was in 1984-1985, that the future of medicine would be some combination of the two. That was Dr. Frank Lippman. This is Marnie Salop. Thanks for tuning into my podcast, Marnie on the Move. Each week, I will be inviting interesting, innovative, movers and shakers to join me on the show and share their story. You will discover and hear from thought leaders, experts, influencers, and entrepreneurs from the worlds of wellness, sports, beauty, fitness, fashion, and more. Marnie on the Move will feature an eclectic mix of people I know, work with, and think are generally doing cool things. On each episode, I sync up with my guests about life, career, and training, and showcase their expertise and story. Welcome to the Marnie on the Move podcast. I'm your host, Marnie Salov. Hope you had a wonderful 4th of July and holiday week. I was O-O-O, but I'm back with another incredible thought-leading guest this week. Dr. Frank Lippman is a globally renowned trailblazer and pioneer in functional and integrative medicine. He is the founder of 1111 Wellness in New York City, is a New York Times best-selling author with five books, is the chief medical officer of The Well, and host of the Tune Into Wellness podcast. With over four decades of experience in traditional Western medicine, alternative healing, and Chinese medicine, Dr. Frank Lipman has helped thousands of patients from around the world. He is one of the most sought after experts and doctors in functional medicine. Long-term health and wellness have always been paramount to Dr. Frank Lipman. He believes in identifying the root causes of illness, treating the underlying disturbances, and restoring balance in the body, mind, and environment. And that true health is much, much more than the absence of disease. It is a total state of well-being, including physical, mental, emotional, spiritual, and social components. On this episode, Dr. Frank Lippman and I talk about where his career in traditional Western medicine began, the inspiration behind his curiosity and discovery of alternative healing and Chinese medicine, his approach to sustainable health and wellness, functional medicine, and what he calls good medicine. We cover topics including lifespan versus health span, maintaining performance of your organs and mitochondria as you age, brain health, Alzheimer's, and dementia, and he offers a glimpse into the future of medicine and health. Of course, we touch upon his latest book, which I highly recommend, How to Be Well, the ultimate easy-to-use go-to manual for lifelong vitality. In it, you will find the good medicine mandala made up of six rings that represent the foundational pillars of long-lasting health. There are over 100 simple steps you can do to live your healthiest and happiest life. You'll be empowered to go at your own pace, one healthy step at a time. I hope you enjoy. If you like what you hear, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It's easy. Scroll through the list of Marnie on the Move podcasts on your app. Click on write a review, share what you like about the podcast, your favorite episodes, what inspires you, and leave a review. Also, 
Again, thanks for all your great feedback on the podcast. I love when you send us direct messages on social media or questions via email. So please keep up the great inspiration for us and for me as your host. Send over any questions you have for our guests, any questions you have for me, and we will try to answer them. Just ask me anything. Also, please tell your friends to listen, email them a link, put it on your social platforms when you're listening. And again, always share what you love and tag Marnie on the move. Sign up for our newsletter, The Download, to find out about upcoming events, branded series, summits this summer, great deals, offers, and giveaways from our partners. Okay, now on to the episode. You have over four decades of experience in medicine, from traditional Western medicine to Chinese medicine, and I'm sure so much more. So can you tell me a little bit about what you do as a functional medicine practitioner? I do what I call, I practice good medicine. It's a combination of many of the medicines and the the modalities that I've learned over the years. I, I qualified as a regular Western medical physician in 1979 in South Africa, and I practiced as a regular doctor. I worked uh, in the hospital, I worked in the bush, I worked in a general practice, and then I came and I did a internship in internal medicine in America because that's who sponsored me for a green card. And you know, my wife and I ran away from South Africa because of apartheid in the 80s. And I got a job in New York City in the South Bronx, which was uh, what they call the shortage area for doctors. American doctors didn't want to work there in those days because it was burnt out area full of uh, heroin and crack addicts. So they were able to sponsor me for a green card. And I did three years of internal medicine because in New York State, you needed three years to get a license. And that's, I had my traditional medical training. But I realized early on that my training in Western medicine was very limited. You know, Western medicine is wonderful at crisis care. If you're acutely ill, if you break a bone, if you have appendicitis, if you've got pneumonia, Western medicine is fantastic. But I realized early on for most of the day-to-day problems that people have and when they're tired and they got a headache and they're constipated and they're stressed out, Western medicine has no tools. So I started exploring alternatives early on. I started in South Africa, maybe in those days because I was part of you know, a bit of an alternative community, more of a hippie-type community in, in the 70s in South Africa. And uh, we got the 60s and the 70s in South Africa. So I already was being exposed to alternative stuff then. Was that from your family growing no, up? No, my family was traditional. My father was a traditional pharmacist, a doctor wannabe. My brother is a physician. He's a actually uh, intensive care specialist that wasn't from my family it was from my friends and the people I hung out with I got some exposure then and I also got exposure in the hospital in 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 South Africa when I worked in South Africa everything was in those days was separated black and white during apartheid so there were black schools and white schools there were black neighborhoods and white neighborhoods there were black hospitals and white hospitals and I was always intrigued by African culture, by black culture, so I tended to choose to work in, in the black hospitals. And I, I also noticed then when we couldn't help the patients, or Western medicine wasn't helping the patients, the family would call in the local healer, the traditional healer called the Sangoma, 
and sometimes a Sangoma helped these patients. So my mind was opened a little bit in those days. And then, and I also worked after working in the bush, I worked in a practice in Johannesburg for a, an open doctor, GP, who was very open. And he looked after all the left wing, so the left wing community in Johannesburg and all the artsy community. And a lot of them were coming in and they had seen the one acupuncturist and they'd seen a homeopath and they were telling me, well, they got better when I went to the homeopath or, you know, I had a headache and I went to the acupuncturist and I feel better. So, you know, my mind started opening up early on, but it was only when I came to the States in 84 and I started doing my residency and I realized I just didn't want to practice the way medicine was practiced in, in America, that I thought, okay, I need to explore other alternatives. And that's sort of where the journey really began in New York City in the South Bronx in 1984. What was it like then? It was a fascinating time, but I didn't know any better because we landed in New York. I got this job. We actually landed the year before. I went for an interview. I got a job and then we went traveling around America. So I didn't really know what the South Bronx was until I started working there. And, you know, I was in a way used to it because I'd worked in Soweto, which was a pretty rough area in Baragwanath Hospital. So it was in the townships and that was pretty rough. But I didn't know any different in those days, although it was pretty rough because I didn't know any different. I, was, I wasn't really scared because I didn't know if, in, in, right. if I would go there today, I'd be petrified. But right. I didn't know any better. So that was good. Was there one thing that you were seeing a lot of that you were treating or? Yeah, well, I was in the medical department. The surgical department was seeing knife wounds and gunshot and all a lot of trauma in in the medical department we were seeing a lot of heroin addicts and the results of sepsis of injecting sharing needles so we're seeing a lot of infections we're seeing a lot of pneumonia heart attacks and pneumonias we're seeing acutely ill patients so the hospital was fantastic for what i'd got trained in so hospitals are perfect for Western medicine. But when I realized that there was more to medicine and I heard about this acupuncture clinic, which was actually doing uh, acupuncture detox for addicts in the 80s in, in the South Bronx, I went to explore that clinic because well, I'd seen that acupuncture worked. So because I was disillusioned, I went, I walked in this burnt out neighborhood to the acupuncture clinic was which was a few blocks away but was attached to the hospital and I walked in there and I saw all these addicts sitting quietly with needles in their ears and I was pretty intrigued because they were the same type of patients I was seeing in the wards and these patients were pulling out their IVs and they were very difficult to deal with and they were shouting and screaming and they're very aggressive and there all these addicts were sitting quietly with needles in their ears so I thought well this is interesting and that was got me to say okay I'm going to pers- you know I'm going to check this out so when did you start practice did you practice acupuncture or you just well I started learning in 1984 so during my residency from 84 to 87 I, I started going back and forth I'd go to the hospital for, during my residency and when I had free time I'd go to the acupuncture clinic so I was starting to do both learn both modalities that you know I had to do my residency um and um but I'd spend my spare time going to the acupuncture clinic and seeing what was going on at the acupuncture clinic. And I saw there, that was in 1984, 1985, that the future of medicine would be some combination of the two because we were seeing two completely different types of patients. In the hospital, we were seeing really sick people and Western medicine was working very well. And at the clinic, I was seeing those people who were tired and they were constipated and they were bloated and they were stressed out and acupuncture was working very well. So I I realized there that the future of medicine would be some combination of the two because they work for two completely different types of patients. 
And that's what functional medicine is, a combination of... Exactly. And then for years, I was struggling to try to combine the two because they're completely different languages. You know, Chinese medicine talks about too much heat in the body and liver qi and it's, it's you know, an energy and it's completely different language. So in the first few years, I was struggling to find something. I was trying to put the two together and it just was very difficult and then um, in 1989 I met Jeff Bland who's mm-hmm. the father of functional medicine and I went to a lecture of his one of the nutritionists at the clinic I was working at said look you've got to meet this guy because he's a genius and he's way ahead of the game I went to hear him speak and I had this major aha moment because Jeff Bland was talking Chinese medicine from a Western perspective. So he had combined the concepts of improving function in Chinese medicine and creating balance in Chinese medicine and combined that with the biochemistry and the physiology and the anatomy of Western medicine. It was creating, because it was early days in those days, what is now called functional medicine. So that was an aha experience for me because he had sort of, when he was talking about or explaining or lecturing you know, all the lights went off for me because he is putting into words what I was seeing and trying to understand for myself. And so that's how you came to no, practice good medicine. Yeah, and that's how I got philosophy. into functional, you know, continued pursuing Chinese medicine, but I also started following Jeff and going to lectures. And that was when functional medicine and few, this is when it was starting. So it was evolving in those days. So, and, and now it's a big, powerful force. And so talk to me a little bit about good medicine, which is the philosophy that you practice. Yeah, I just call it good medicine because I don't, I, I don't like giving anything names. It's just I use Western medicine when it's appropriate and I use alternatives when it's appropriate. So if sometimes someone's coming to me with chest pain who may have a heart attack, I'll send them to the emergency room because they need to be worked up. If someone I think has pneumonia, I'll give them you know, get them an x-ray and give them antibiotics if they need antibiotics. If someone breaks a bone, I'm not going to give them acupuncture. They need to see an orthopedic surgeon or whatever it is. So I use Western, it's not that I'm against Western medicine, but when people come and see me, most of them have these chronic low-grade problems, whether it's autoimmune problems or any chronic illness. Western medicine doesn't really have any tools. Western medicine has drugs or surgery. So I use other ways of treating patients who come in with those chronic problems, which is most people. What are some of the chronic problems that you see predominantly, especially here in New York? Well, it's changed. It's changing all the time. It's unfortunately getting worse and worse. In the last five to 10 years, we're seeing more and more young women with chronic autoimmune problems. 20 years ago, it was, we were seeing more and more people who are coming in with fatigue and chronic fatigue and adrenal stuff. And then we started seeing more and more people with gastrointestinal problems. You know, what is labeled irritable bowel syndrome. Everyone has irritable bowel syndrome. And now it's evolved into so many people, in in particular young people, have autoimmune problems. They're making antibodies to their own tissues. Do you think that's because they're not, when they go to a Western medicine practitioner, that they're not looking for anything? Like they don't check, like if we're talking about how do you detect autoimmune, I mean... No, I think Western medicine detects it. Western medicine's fine at picking up the antibodies, but then they just give you a name. So you have antibodies to your thyroid, so you have Hashimoto's disease. You have antibodies to other sorts of sorts of tissues and you may have rheumatoid arthritis or lupus or whatever it is so it's not that 
Western medicine can't diagnose these things or give it a name, but Western medicine doesn't really get to the underlying causes of these problems and has no tools really to change the course of the disease rather than give them strong drugs to suppress the symptoms. And often those drugs have side effects, especially over time. So the problem is not diagnosing these new diseases we're seeing. The problem is how they treat it. That's where I have an issue with Western medicine. Rather than the diagnosis, it's more how they treat it and managed. And so do you find often that you're treating some of these autoimmune diseases with diet and food? You know, my philosophy has evolved to, to take into account the way people eat, the way people sleep, the way they move their bodies, the chemicals they're exposed to, how they deal with stress. So it's, it's a multifactorial way of treating people because there's usually many factors. So we, we're changing people's diets often. We usually have to treat the gut. Or we're mm-hmm. using supplements and diet to treat the gut. Um, we're trying to teach people to chill out because most people in New York are stressed out. We're trying to get them to see the importance of sleep. We're trying to get them to move their bodies in a way that's not too stressful for them. We try to get them to meditate or to deal with the stress. We try to make them aware of all the chemicals that they could be exposed to and how to decrease the number that they either putting into their body or onto their body. So we're using all these ways of trying to decrease the loads or the stress load on someone's body so they can so the body can, you know, somehow try and heal itself ultimately. Yeah. And you have a book that you wrote, How to Be Well, The Six Keys to a Happy and Healthy Life, that talks about a lot of the different ways that you approach treatment. Right. So that's my latest book. But most of my books, I usually talk about the whole holistic perspective. As with each book, I think I refine it a little bit more and it becomes a little bit better. I think this last book, How to Be Well, is probably my best and book. It's just the easiest to read and there's just a ton of great information and it's just well laid out and it's really easy for people. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a great way for people to kind of connect with functional medicine and good medicine and what you're doing. I mean, you break it out into everything from what you just talked about, like eat, sleep, move, unwind, connect what to do when. So even if people aren't in New York, they could download on Audible or they could buy your book. It's a great guide. Yeah, it is a good guide, even if I say so myself. So, you know, my philosophy has been, you know, when you start realizing that there's so much great information out there and it's not that accessible for people because most people unfortunately go to the doctor and think Western medicine has all the answers. So, you know, the more you do it, the more you try and articulate this information in a way that's going to be easy for people to get the information, embrace it and use it. I am 100% on board with your philosophy and approach. I believe when it comes to day-to-day health and well-being, food, diet, exercise and sleep are the factors that I look to and consider. I also add supplements to smoothies and coffee throughout the day, and I'm a huge fan of mushrooms and Chinese medicine. Recently, I went to my general medicine practitioner for a routine checkup and was asking about testing different biomarkers, which he thought was ridiculous and unnecessary. So obviously, I'm not going to be going to him anymore. Which leads me to my next question. What is your philosophy or thoughts about health span versus lifespan and biomarkers that we need to look at as we age? 
Right. I think this is, you know, one of the weaknesses of Western medicine. We need Western medicine. I'm, I'm once again, not again, West, you know, I came off my bike, I broke my wrist, I went to have surgery and, and I went to hospital for special surgery and it was an incredibly good experience. It right. was, there was no, everyone couldn't have been nicer. It was, you know, and I hate hospitals. So um, it's not that Western medicine is bad. It's just, you know, what you're talking about when it comes to increasing the health span, we don't have any tools for that. And um, so the idea is, you know, as we get older, I'm 64. As you get older, you realize you want to just, you know, I just want to be as vital as I can for as long as I can and then just drop dead. Most right. people in our culture suffer with chronic problems as they get older and they can't do many things or they're in pain um, they're not as sharp. They have some type of disability. That's sort of the accepted way of aging. And we look at lifespan. So we think if someone lives to 87 or 90, that's a long lifespan. But we really should be looking at our health span. I don't want to suffer from when I'm 65 or 70 till when I'm 90 or whatever. I want to be as vital as I can. Now, sure, I can't exercise as hard as maybe I used to 20 years ago I mean I don't do as much yoga because I hurt my knee and so you adapt I mean but that's different I do a different type of exercise but I want to stay as vital and sharp and engaged and as functional as I can until you know maybe a day or a week or a month or before I die that's so you want to increase that period of your vitality as long as you can and that's your health span so that's what you, we should be talking about and that's what functional medicine does and as I've gotten older I've got more into what we're calling longevity medicine you know at first it was wellness but now at 64 and I have AARP and I have so I have to sign up for Medicare when you're turning 65 you start you know seeing things a little bit differently and so we have developed a program in 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 my office i work with a holistic cardiologist and my uh, bidental hormone and supplement guy i've been working with for the last 30 years scott we've developed a longevity program where we measure many of these markers that biomarkers that you're talking about because there are many biomarkers that tell us if they're a little bit high there this is there are changes you can make to adjust that. So there are many, many tools we have, even in Western medicine, that can tell us what to do to adjust to make you feel more vital. And now in this new medicine, we can even go beyond that. There's some genetic tests. There are many genetic tests which can actually tell you where you have genetic weaknesses where you need to either take a certain supplement or do certain things to actually override or to improve the way those genetic markers are, are functioning so or those genes are functioning so there are so many tools we have now in our toolbox it's become extremely sophisticated and western medicine is missing the boat on this it's interesting a lot of the biohackers are sort of getting into this stuff um, and at the moment the biohacking movement is these young you know performance athlete type people but you know, to say as you get older, you've got to see your body as some type of, you know, as an athlete, and you want to keep the performance as optimal as possible, whether it's your brain or your musculoskeletal system, your digestive system. So you want to biohack. I hate the word biohack, but you want to keep maintaining the performance of all the different organs. And so you have is, to check the levels and make sure that everything's at yeah, the right spot. Absolutely. There are tons of biomarkers that we measure now. And, 
you know, we've seen unbelievable results by measuring these things that we didn't. I didn't. I've been a functional medicine for, uh, doctor for so long. We never measured these for so many years. Now, there are all these biomarkers that you can measure that can actually help you in determining even your diet. For instance, there's a gene, the the, the Alzheimer's gene, the ApoE gene, um, which I actually happen to have so people like me with that particular gene are more prone to alzheimer's disease if if you don't change your lifestyle so you know on one level it can scare you on the other level it can say okay you got to take these recommendations more seriously so for instance i've always been not always but when i found out i was pre-diabetic i became very low carb or low carb and high saturated fat um, lots of animal protein now that I've found out about this gene, I realized I shouldn't be eating as much of the animal saturated fat and maybe get your fats in other places, maybe eat more plant protein. So I've adjusted my diet accordingly. And that's because you have the apo- ApoE4 gene. ApoE4 yeah. gene, yeah. which is a, Alzheimer's, diabetes. Well, yeah, that's all exactly. It makes me more prone to that. So, you know, my philosophy is still the same. I need to be on a low-carb diet, but maybe I shouldn't be eating as much saturated fat. Not that I'm scared of saturated fat, but I was like, you know, I don't put butter in my coffee anymore. I just right. put MCT oil in. So I've made little adjustments. So I think knowing these things is incredibly helpful. So not only has it been helpful for me personally, but then I bring that information and we're helping more and more patients. And it's there's a lot one can do by measuring these biomarkers and, cha- and, and recommending lifestyle changes. So you just hit like three of the topics that I wanted to talk about, which were, number one, I am completely fascinated by being able to do this genetic testing and finding out what your DNA is and then epigenetics and how can you adjust and adapt. And if you think that you really can adjust and adapt. Of course you can. So, but you can't change your DNA. No, you can't, you can't. There's certain genes that you can't change. If you've got the genes for blue eyes or brown hair, you're not going to change. But the, most of your genes, 98, 98% of them, are actually adaptable. So you can have, like for instance, I have the genes for heart disease, for diabetes, for Alzheimer's. Whether I get those diseases is determined by how I live my life because you can switch genes on and switch them off. So that's where the epigenetics come in. I can't change the fact that I have those genes. But what it does do for me is it makes it more imperative that I live my life in a certain way that those genes don't get activated. So it's what you bathe your genes in which will determine how they express themselves. So I have the predisposition to those diseases. That's the, those, those are the cards that I got dealt with. Um, you know, my father died when he was 54. My brother had a heart attack at 50. Whether that happens to me is really determined by how I live my life. So you really need to, if you know that you're predisposed for certain diseases, you need to get ahead of it and educate yourself as to what you can do. And yeah, not only educate yourself and make those changes. I mean, so you can see it too. It can be scary. and, And if you not making those changes that if you're that type of person who's not going to change maybe you don't want to know but if you're that type of person who wants to know and you know you can make those changes then i think it's great information to know so you can shift your destiny absolutely your genes are not your destiny yes 
There is someone out of Harvard who his name is David Sinclair. Do you yeah, know David? Yeah, Sinclair? I mean, I know of his way. Yeah, he what he's talking about about the work he's doing about extending your lifespan and increasing your health range through certain supplements like mm-hmm. NMN and mm-hmm. NADs. Are you I'll on take board? it, of course. You do. I'll take it. <laughs> Can you tell me a little bit? I am like ready today to get on board with the program, like do it all. Like I want to live healthy for the next 30, so you should 50 go through years. Our program? I am yeah. going to. I'm okay. 100% doing it. But, um, but yeah, talk to me a little bit about epigenetics. Maybe give me like the definition because I think we're talking and I'm assuming people know what that is. And then... Well, I I think it's sort of what I was saying earlier. It's the idea that most of your genes are changeable. So most of your genes are not set in stone. As I said, you know, there are certain genes, you know, that you can't, there's nothing you can do about it. If you've got the genes for blue eyes, brown eyes, you're not going to have blue eyes. Right. If you have certain diseases, um, diseases that usually you get as a child you you can't change but most of the genes that we have are really predispositions they just i as i said i have the genes for alzheimer's heart disease diabetes but it's what you bathe those genes in it's how you what you eat how you live your life how you move your body if you're going to exercise or not um, how you deal with stress how many chemicals you're exposed to. That all, all of those factors are going to adjust the way those genes are expressed. So, um, and that's epigenetics, that you can change the way these genes are expressed. So um, you don't have to ha- get those diseases just because you've got a genetic predisposition. They're predispositions. That don't mean you're going to get it. Right. And so... So you are doing, you talk to me a little bit about NMN and NAD and what is that exactly, well, those supplements? Th- that's the idea that the mitochondria are key to aging and, and your health. So the mitochondria are these energy powerhouses in all our cells. And as we age, the function and the number of our mitochondria decrease. So a lot of anti-aging and longevity programs and a lot of the health programs people talk about are about improving the functioning and the number of mitochondria. So what what improves that? Mitochondria prefer fat for energy than sugar. So you, you should be eating as little sugar as possible. You don't want as chemicals. So you want to eat, you know, vegetables, but, you know, organic. Um, you mitochondria do well with uh, exercise, in particular high-intensity uh, interval training. Uh, mitochondria do well with alternating cold and heat, so sort of having a cold shower or having a sauna, jumping into a cold shower, going back into the sauna. Um, sleep will help your mitochondria. Stress reduction, all the things, all the lifestyle factors we're talking about. So to me, mitochondria are the Western equivalent of what we call chi or energy in Western medicine. It's that our same concept. So anything that's going to, the lifestyle changes we, we're talking about usually work through the mitochondria. That's the physiological um, mechanism probably why these lifestyle changes work. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think I, I know you talk so, about So those that. supplements are yeah. are another way of improving mitochondrial function. So And you think, di- and they work? 
I hope so. Yeah. No, I mean, I was just thinking. About, I mean, I, yeah. I mean, I was just thinking about like you know what I could do because you know I want to live till I want to do a marathon at ninety. Right. Know? So. And, and I want to recover from it and like not die. I mean, I I do think once you get older, you yeah. start your way of seeing things changes. When you're younger, it's about building up and getting stronger. As you get older, when you're 40s, you start, you should be starting to shift to preserving. Yes. So you don't push your body as much. You take sleep more seriously. You're a little bit strict about everything you do. So I think um, as you get older, you start looking at how you can preserve function more than how do I actually build up function. Well, that's the way I see it anyway. Right. Yeah, no, I mean, I think it's uh, super important to to think about things that way in the prevention mode. Are there certain biomarkers at certain ages that you should be watching? Yeah, yeah, I think it's funny you ask because I'm actually writing a book as we speak on longevity. The idea is to probably adapt or the things you do should change somewhat. They're always similar but as you get older, you take them more seriously and you adapt a little bit more. The biomarkers that we can measure are probably the same. I mean, it's good to measure the biomarkers and and adapt accordingly. I think what you do when you're a little bit younger is a little bit different. So the way I exercise now is, you know, I've got a gammy knee. I messed up my knee playing soccer. So I don't. I definitely don't run anymore. I do much less yoga as much as I love yoga because it seems to bother my knee more, but I ride my bike more now, and I love riding my bike. I'll, instead of going for a run, I'll go for a walk. So you just adjust. When I do do yoga, I'll do more restorative yoga than rock and roll yoga, nor ashtanga yoga is not for me because I hurt myself. Right. So you just adjust accordingly. I think the biomarkers are similar when you measure them. It's just what you do with them at different ages, which is important. Right. And then speaking of biomarkers and health, you talk a lot about brain health. You, know, you mentioned that you have the gene, you're predisposed for Alzheimer's. I'd love to talk about brain health and how you can, even if you, if you have the gene, if you don't have the gene, like what kind of foods could you be eating? And what can you be doing just to sure, keep your brain lot. healthy it's, over the years? It's the same as keeping everything else healthy. I think there's, you know, it's about decreasing the carbohydrates or the sugar in particular in your diet a lot of people are calling alzheimer's disease diabetes 3 okay um, it's about decreasing the chemicals that you're putting into your body because that can be a factor so it's generally about decreasing inflammation but it's not only what you eat or it's it's, it's more about avoiding certain foods than what you should eat so it's really the sugar is the devil chemicals bad news and then it's important to exercise exercise is as good for the brain as it is for the body meditation stress reduction is key sleep is you know a lot of people feel that a lack of good sleep is probably a predisposing factor for alzheimer's too you know we have something called the lymphatic system in the brain which is uh, sort of like a cleaning crew in the brain that only works when you sleep so when you don't sleep you're not cleaning out the toxic proteins that um you know that are accumulate during the day so over time you're going to be more predisposed to brain fog and dysfunction and, and eventually alzheimer's disease so 
we're talking about the same thing, you know, getting good sleep, moving your body, seeing that you deal with stress properly, avoiding the crap in the food, you know, keeping the sugar down, having being lonely is a is a major issue too. So it's you know, I sort of the more I do this, the more I realize it's you know, what you do for your brain is is the same as what you do generally for your health. There's no right. real distinction. Well, I mean, what about in Chinese medicine? Because I know there are some different mushrooms that you can take no, think, that really yeah. help. And how can you do that? Like, well, how I can think, someone? Yeah, I think mushrooms are, are very interesting. I, you know, I sort of got into mushrooms early on from a Chinese perspective, and then I've sort of sort of forgot about them, and I'm getting back into them again. You know, there's more and more research showing mushrooms are good for the brain. So. I think mushrooms are great foods to incorporate in one's diet because they have certain nutrients that are, have a positive effect on our brain and our function in general. So I think um, it's one of those, as I'm getting older, I'm getting back into starting to take mushrooms again. You know, I, I took them early on because in Chinese medicine you used different mushrooms. But now that I'm getting more into this and reading more about it, I'm starting to be more intrigued and, and eating more mushrooms in my diet and starting to, you know, even take mushroom supplements. I was going to say mushroom supplements like lion's mane. Yes. Or yeah, turkey tail, things like for that. For your mind. Yeah. Your brain. Yeah. But Those are uh, yeah, I mean, there's so many. The problem with supplements is there's so many supplements you can take. I mean, I take a lot of supplements when I remember. You know, I take curcumin, I take resveratrol, I take the, I don't take NMN, I probably should, but I take nicotinamide, riboside. You do? Yeah, okay. absolutely. I li- yeah, you know, I take PQQ. So I take a lot of, you know, I take alpha-lipoic acid, I take CoQ10, I don't, I take fish oils, I don't. Take you them take fish re- oils. Yeah, absolutely. I, I don't take them religiously because I sometimes forget, but I take them often enough. And uh, I'm a big believer in supplements, um, huge believer in supplements. And uh, so I take them. Uh, I'm not as religious as I probably should be, but I find them very helpful. I use them in my practice a lot. I find them very helpful. I mean, targeted supplementation, I think, can be and is very helpful for people. And it's a lot like medicine. I mean, you can also take too much. So it's good yeah. to... I think you need to work with someone who understands supplements. And, and it should be targeted. That's why I always talk about targeted supplementation. Take supplements according to your needs. Now, as you get older and if you want to get into this whole longevity and anti-aging thing, yeah, a lot of the supplements I take are, you know, do we know for sure they help? But you know what? I'm not going to wait till we know for sure. To me, right. it's an insurance policy. I'll take them. And there's not a big side effect for you in terms of like when you take them. Not at all. If I, if anything, I think I feel more energized. Um, I'm so used to taking them now, but when I forget to take them for a while, which I don't, I start feeling a little bit more sluggish. But so that's sort of a reminder. Are there certain ones specifically for Alzheimer's or dementia or getting into that? Well, I think once I think once you have dementia, it starts becoming tricky i think there's no magic bullet for for alzheimer's or any particular problem i think it needs to be dealt with on many levels but i am a big believer in uh, you know when it comes to brain health it would be the the curcumin the resveratrol the nicotinamide riboside the pqq all the stuff that i'm 
concern about my mind going. So there's actually a wonderful book by Dale Bredson called The End of Alzheimer's. He talks a lot about the tests you can do um, and some of the supplements you can take. But I think it's a multifactorial issue. So it needs to be addressed by, you know, stress reduction, sleep, supplements are just one part of it right do the medicines work some of them or i don't know i don't think they work particularly well otherwise that you know we'd know about it i think these problems are so complicated i don't think there's a magic pill for them i think another important topic and i know there's no real segue here but i would love to talk to you about your thoughts on hydration how important it is to stay hydrated well i think it's important and i don't you know, as you get older, I don't even know when I'm not thirsty, which is what happens as we get older. I come home and my wife will tell me, you didn't drink today because I feel tired. I mean, I don't, the problem with with um, hydration, for, especially as you get older, you you often don't know that you haven't been drinking. So until I feel really tired or I have a headache, then I go, oops, I haven't drunk. So I do think hydration is important, especially as one gets older, in particular because I don't think you you realize how dehydrated you are. I mean, often patients have come in with headaches or feeling tired and you just tell them to drink more water and they feel better. Now, I don't say water and hydration. You know, It depends what you hydrate with, but I don't think it's the answer to everything. But I think a lot of people are more dehydrated than they realize. And I'm a perfect example. Yeah, and I know that I heard on one of your interviews that you like sparkling water. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it makes any... You know, people are against sparkling water. I don't think it makes... You just get the water into you. I'd rather have it without sugar. So if, if it sparkles, it's better than sugared. What are your thoughts on whether or not we need to be drinking alkaline water? Yeah, I don't know about that. I mean, some people swear by it. I'm not... I don't know. I mean, I can't... You know, I hate to knock things when I don't know. You know, it's it's... A, the knee-jerk reaction of Western doctors is to knock everything. It's uh, it's quackery. I mean, I've over the years got knocked for so many things that have then turned out, you know, the same doctors who knocked it, they go, oh, re-, you know, uh, I, I, embracing it. So I, I can't knock, you know, alkaline water because I don't really know. Some people swear by it. It may work. I, I don't know. It's not something I have any experience with or knowledge about or I'm prepared to say is good or bad. I don't I just don't know. And what do you think about New York City tap water? I'm a big fan of water filters because I think there are a lot of chemicals in the water that, you know, over time may become a problem because you're getting chemicals in the water, in the food, in the air you breathe. So it's it's a multitude of chemicals that we're exposed to that over time create a problem. So to me the fewer chemicals you can put into your body the better. So even if they say New York City water is, you know, is, is safe, it, it may be safe if you have to drink water and you don't have a filter, you know, drink the water. But if you can put a filter in, I recommend a water filter. So I don't, is it the end of the world to drink New York City tap water? Probably not. But if you can get a water filter, why not? I just think it's better to decrease the number of chemicals that you put into your body, period. Whether yeah. it's on your skin, in the water, in the chemicals you use to clean your house wherever it is yeah no i think that's great and so you're so busy taking care of everyone what do you do to take care of yourself well as you get older it becomes more and more important because if you don't you feel it so you know because i have to be on every day i you know i generally wake up every morning and i meditate now am i perfect no but i generally will 
most mornings I wake up and first thing I do is I'll meditate. Unless I've, you know, I've gone to bed too late and I always try to go to bed fairly early and, and I want more sleep because I, you know, become more and more obsessed with my sleep as I get gotten older. Do you ever get stressed out about falling asleep? No, I never get stressed out about falling asleep, but I know when I'm stressed when I wake up in the middle of the night and I can't go back to sleep. Right. It's like a, even when <laughs> I don't even think I'm stressed, it's like, oh, okay. You're obviously stressed about something. So, you know, I try and meditate. I ride my bike on the weekend. Friday, Saturday, Sunday, I ride my bike. Do you go over uh, the G- Are you in the city? No, I usually ride it in the countryside. And I we bought a Peloton for when it's cold and when I, you know, can't go outside. So cycling has become my main form of exercise. And then my wife and I walk a lot. I do a little bit of yoga, hardly any anymore, but I need to get back into yoga and I need to get back into the gym. So I need to start working with someone. Like doing strength training. Yeah, because that's my biggest weakness is that. So I, I know I need to do it and I just, I need to find the time to do it. Yeah, I think it's hard. And you always talk a lot about fascia and, you know, making sure that your organs yeah. and your muscles are healthy. So Right. So the fascia in a way is easy because I have a foam roller and I get body work. So I try to keep my fascia as loose as possible. But, you know, as we get older, strength training also becomes more important. That's my, my biggest weakness would be the exercise part or, or lack of strength training. Yeah, I think me too. I mean, I spend a lot of time running, swimming and cycling and being a triathlete. And then there's only so many hours in the week. And I always feel like, you know, especially as I get older, I need to strength train yeah. big time. But I met your friend Lauren recently, Roxburgh. Uh, she's great. And yeah. her, her low rocks sphere has been amazing at helping me to roll out my psoas because I spend a lot of time on the bike. Good. Yeah. So what are you seeing? Last question. What are you seeing like some big sort of trends or topics that are percolating on the wellness scene now? You know, I don't know. I'm not, I've never been one for trends. I think what, you know, I've always just sort of gone with where I I think um, I want to head. To me, I'm heading from wellness into longevity. For me, it's like going beyond wellness and into the specifics of measuring biomarkers and individualizing treatments. So from the generic to the individual. And you can, you know, individualize treatments is where I think it's happening. And, you know, people can measure everything they want, you know, whether it's the outer ring to measure your sleep. And so I think, you know, I love the idea of taking medicine um, out of the doctor's office and, you know, um, and uh, sort of empowering people to take charge of their own health. So I think with the biohacking movement and, and the obsession with measuring everything, I think that's going to get more sophisticated and, and, and a little bit more gentle at the moment. It's very masculine and performance-driven. I think that's probably going to evolve into something that most of us can use and, and find helpful. Yeah, so people can have their own dashboard yeah, on their and, computer and, of their wellness and they can manage it. Yeah, and, and, and do what's right for you, and which may not be right for the next person. I feel like that's such an awesome... I love that idea. It's kind of like what I do with my training, right? I have training peaks. My coach uploads my workouts. I do them. 
he sees what my heart rate is and what my pace is and my if I'm tired, if I have more energy, and then he recommends the next thing. Right, it's, that's it's, right. Uh, that's the way. Uh, the future. Yeah. Yep. The future of wellness. Yep. People can buy your book. On yeah, how to be well is the book. It's a really good book. Uh, it's an illustrated book of over a hundred tips. The site is drfranklippen.com. And you have an exciting new. Uh, and now I'm the chief medical officer of the Well, which is a very cool young organization with a, a membership club in New York and we're going to be doing a lot of great work and initially there's going to be a club in New York and then probably and then a second club in New York and then we're going to spread into big cities and we're going to develop programs online programs so for people who aren't members so that's very exciting because I'm being used for my knowledge in that and, and I have this wonderful group of younger people who are so committed and dedicated and smart and it's very exciting to actually work with this new generation who are who really make things happen so yes the well is something to uh, watch, patients, watch out for because and patients can come see you here at 11 11 yeah, yeah i still see patients here at 11 i'm still practicing here and we're getting more and more into longevity and this um, is your practice? This is my practice, yeah. And when did you start this practice? I started this practice in 1992. That's great. Well, thank you so much. This has been amazing. Thank you, and good luck with your podcast. Thank you. And spreading the word. Yes. Okay, thank you. Thanks again for tuning in to Marnie on the Move. If you like what you hear, leave us a five-star review in Apple Podcasts. Follow us on social at Marnie on the Move for Facebook and Instagram and Marnie Salop on Twitter. Head over to our website, MarnieOnTheMove.com for more info on this episode, links in the show notes, and of course, sign up for our quarterly newsletter, The Download, to get updates, deals, giveaways, and information on future events for 2019. I want to hear from you. Email me marnieonthemove1 at gmail.com and let me know what you're enjoying, what you want to hear more of. If you have questions for our guests, just reach out.